0: Hi everybody, my name's Larry, and I'm an alcoholic. And uh Losers Unite and uh is the theme of this morning's uh meeting. I uh I'm glad to be with you guys. I want to thank this committee for uh going out on a limb and having us come out here and everybody that has a commitment here and uh pitched into this wonderful g- gathering here. Um you know it's uh Been a while since I've been here. Um, I think the last time I was here, I was having heart surgery, and um, they took out my aorta valve and they put in a cow valve. So, uh, you know, now I can poop standing up, you know. I mean, uh, and And we had a long ride over here from Portland, and every time we went by a big pasture, I just kind of wandered around, you know. <laughs> but uh, everything's working good, and, uh, and I'm glad to be with I want to give a shout out to my driver and our driver who picked us up at the airport and chauffeured us around wherever we want, and that's Mike. Thank you, Mike. Mike, uh, you know, was stuck with us for the long drives, and we got to know each other pretty good, and, uh, you know, heck of a guy, and a couple years sober, and he was sharing with me about this reoccurring nightmare that he has, you know, and I felt, God, I felt privileged that he would, you know, share me this stuff, and apparently, uh, he's got this, uh, nightmare where he, uh, where he dies and goes to hell, you know, and, uh, you know, and he's wandering around hell, you know, and he's got the long face on. And old Satan comes up to him and says, hey, Mike, why the long face? And he says, well, I'm in hell. And he says, oh, for God's sakes, you're going to love Mondays. Do you like to drink? And he goes, yeah, a little. You're going to love Mondays. We got vodka. We got gin. We got old English. We got mad dog. And you don't have to worry about dying. Hell, you know, you're dead. And he goes, Yeah. And he says, did you ever do any dope? And he goes, well, a little. And he says, well, that's the kind of lion that got you down here. He says, you're going to love Tuesdays. We've got heroin. We've got crack. We've got hash. We've got weed. We've got everything you need. And you don't have to worry about overdosing. Hell, you're dead. He goes, yeah. He says, do you like to smoke? And he goes, yeah. He said, well, you're going to love Wednesdays. We got camels, we got buglers, we got viceroys, we got cools, we got Virginia slims. You can vape your all day long, you know. And he says, oh, that's great. And you don't have to worry about cancer. Hell, you're dead, Mike. And he goes, yeah. He says, do you like to gamble? And he goes, sure. He said, you're going to love Thursdays we've got poker, we got pan, we've got the ponies, we got slots, you don't have to worry about getting broke, hell, you're dead. He goes, this is great. He says, are you gay? And he goes, no. He says, oh, well, you're going to hate Fridays, you know. <laughs> and that's my driver, you know. If you're new, I want to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want to give a big shout out to the gentleman with 63 years. I'm very privileged to be among you. Very privileged to be among all you guys. I want to welcome the new people. My sponsor tells me that I'm living proof that a man can stay sober for a little over 39 years and not amount to a damn thing. So I I don't know where you think you're going if you're new, but the highest I've ever gotten here is sober, basic human being, active member of my own home group. And that's as high as I need to get. I've sponsored a couple guys who have gotten higher than that, And I can't find them, you know, but they'll usually float around about birthday time or something like that. And if you're new, I I know a little bit about you. And I'm not here to talk about your drinking. You've had people doing that your entire life. I'm here to share with you a little bit about what I used to be like and what's happened to me and what I'm like today. And I know if you're anything like me, if you're new, there's something about you that when you're drunk and there's something about you that when you're not drinking and there's something about you when you're not drinking that makes you feel a little bit different than anybody else you're around. And you don't know what that is, and maybe you do a little bit, but you don't dare tell anybody what that is. And if you're new, I'm here to share with you is that I hope you stay here long enough to find somebody that you can saddle up to next to and start talking about these things that make you feel so different. And believe me, whatever it is, you will not shock the people in AA. If it hasn't been done by the first four tables down here, it just hasn't been thought of yet. You know what I mean? You are not going to shock the people in AA. And, uh, and find out, and I tell you, I didn't drink myself into Alcoholics Anonymous. Because of you folks and how you shared, I was able to identify myself here and finally find out what was wrong with me. Finally find out what this thing was, because if you're anything like me, by the time that I was 13, by the time that I was 30, I'd been sitting in rooms my entire life, and everybody had one thing, whether it be a clinic, whether it be a jail, whether it be a hospital, whether it be an institution, whether it be a a church room, everybody had one intention, to separate me from alcohol. To think that that would be the problem and I grew up with this idea and I tried to incorporate it that drove me mad and that idea was simply this, Larry if you stop drinking everything will be alright and I'm stopping drinking and I'm not alright and the longer I stay sober the worse I get and running over to AA and seeing these folks stand up and say 30 days ago I was on the streets of Long Beach. Now I'm the president of the Bank of America. Thank you. You know, I go, My God, I came in with that guy. You know what I mean? And I didn't know what my problem was. I had no idea what was wrong with me. And you guys taught me about how to rightly relate myself to this malady. And once I was able to rightly relate myself to this thing, I was able to apply the solution to my life, you know, and thank God for meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous where I was able to sit and listen and identify. And what happened to me is is that I finally found out that I don't have a disease, that I don't have a malady, and that I don't have alcoholism. It has me. It has me. And it'll always have me. I am in the grip of a progressive illness. And what you folks have taught me and what I've been able to incorporate in my life is that because of these principles, I'm able to loosen up that grip just enough to what? To carry this message and to have this god-awful obsession removed. In that last chapter, uh, in step one in the 12 and 12, he says, we stood ready to do anything to lift this merciless obsession. I can't think of a better term for our malady than merciless because it doesn't care how bad you want to stop. I've got a merciless obsession. It doesn't say to remove alcohol. It doesn't say to do anything to stop drinking. It says to remove this merciless obsession, this obsession of the mind, this god-awful thing that strikes the alcoholic when he's not drinking. We are the only people that could be physically beat by this whiskey and be laying on a gurney at the hospital. And the only thought that we have is, when I get out of here, I'm going to Eddie's Liquor Store. Make that go away. Make that go away. We're the only people. I'm the only guy that I, you know, that I, I thought that, that every time I stopped drinking, I had the nightmares of what happened to me. Every time I stop drinking, I know the consequences and the uh, institutions that I'm going to go to. And every time I'm not drinking, I have the wishes and people begging me not, not to drink anymore. And every time I'm not drinking, the only thing that not drinking ever squeezes out of this head of mine is that God-awful thought that this time it's going to be different. Or in my case, the loser's theme song, what's the use? What's the use? Who are you kidding? You've done this before. You know it. this ain't the answer. And it darn near killed me. Darn near killed me. Now, I don't have anything to blame my dream. My life is my fault. I came from great people. I had beautiful parents. And all weekend long, we've been hearing about folks and their parents and stuff like that. And I've had a beautiful time listening to our speakers. So great. And I, too, had great folks. You know, I was born in Detroit and it come out to california when i was about 5 or 6 years old and mom and dad had some problems and they were great people they were just kids you know what i mean and uh, and they had some problems and they separated and 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 they stuck me in a uh, a foster home and in an orphanage for a while and then they got together again and at that time uh, my mom and dad had an idea that you know Let's go to California everything's happening in California you know and they moved to California to give it one more countless vain attempt you know and uh, my mom was a sweet lady my mom was a little Scandinavian lady about five foot tall and she loved diet pills so she was always eating that speed and running around the house at midnight you know and sorting out nuts and bolts in the garage all night you know and raking the neighbor's yard around four in the morning you know and and uh, You know, and uh, she loved to eat that speed and make afghans, so everything in the house had fresh afghans all over the place, you know. (laughs) Couches had afghans, chairs had afghans, my dad's golf clubs had little poodle heads she knit, you know, and we had any animals, they had a fresh vest on, you know, and... Everything was tight and pink just like her, you know, and we didn't have a lot of money, but she had a little room about the size of a bathroom where she did all of her knitting, and you can just hear her all night just just going to town, you know. And, uh, you know, no matter what time you got up, she was up doing something, you know, just scrubbing the floors with your toothbrush and, you know, just a busy lady, you know. And as some of you new guys know that, you know, you eat enough speed that you have a lot of hobbies. Am I right? And you like to do them all at once, right? You're tuning up your car, you're painting, you're shaving, you're picking your face for sure, you know. And uh, you know, and uh, her favorite hobby was to eat that speed and make these huge jigsaw puzzles, right? Not the 1,000 pieces, not the 5,000 pieces, right? But the 1 million pieces of the Mojave Desert. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this would excite her, you know. She, it's going to be a beige night tonight, honey. You know, and. And she'd get her routine going. She'd run down to the drugstore and get her a carton of Raleigh cigarettes. She smoked these Raleigh cigarettes because on the back of each pack of cigarette was a coupon. And if you save enough coupons, you can buy stuff from their catalog. And she would buy more yarn. It was a hideous cycle she was caught up in, you know what I mean? And she'd get her carton of Raleigh's and she would, you know, cash her prescription and get a new prescription and get that stinky peroxide that smelled like sewer gas, you know, and bring that home and put her one and only muumuu on she had for 50 years, you know, and wrap that thing around and get herself in that little breakfast nook and eat some more speed and start putting together this puzzle, you know, and by golly, if she had a piece that didn't fit, well, she had a big pair of toenail clippers and she'd just snip that (laughs) son of a bitch down and wedge it right in there, you know. And I loved my mom to death, man. I loved her to death, you know. And, uh, And when I would come to Alcoholics Anonymous... I would hear and I would say, my drinking didn't bother anybody. See, just because you sin in private doesn't mean that nobody's going to be affected. Everybody was affected in my little circle because of my stuff. I never want to forget that. See, my mom, my mom, she looked like that little actress named Kim Novak. She was beautiful. She had so many friends, and she was so well-liked. And everybody loved being around Betty. She had a great little spirit about her. But my drinking didn't bother her. And by the time I got to you folks in 1982, my mom had whittled away to a nervous, neurotic, psychotic mess. And she was stuck in front of the kitchen window, smoking, waiting for her son to come any day now. If there was a siren, she would think that I was me in the back of the car. If the newspaper comes sliding under, she would look in the obituaries to see if I was there. If it was at night, that shadow walking down the street, is that my boy? And she stood in front of that kitchen all day long. Year after year after, my drinking didn't bother anybody. I never want to forget what it was like to be 17, 18 years old and be put away for a small period of time. And the bus, after I get out, the bus drops us off on a Monday at the courthouse. And I'm supposed to run into the probation department and the court and all that, but I don't. I get off that bus on a Monday and I run into the neighborhood over there in Gardena. And I come out on a Thursday. And I don't show up at home or go to the courthouse or anything like that. No, no, no. I show up at my mom's place of business. You see, she's cleaning people's houses and she working at a dry cleaners and I'm ashamed of her and I make fun of her but I'm not too ashamed to show up unannounced one more time eight o'clock in the morning with my bare feet and my filth and my disgust what why no Joe used to call the habiliments of despair and I'm standing there at eight o'clock in the morning with all this filth and, 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 and bare feet and I'm about from here to back of those doors And I'm watching people in that dry cleaners and I'm hiding behind a parked car waiting for that last customer to come out of there so I could make the move on my mom. And that last customer leaves and I start walking through that rain just like it was yesterday. And I can see those filthy bloody feet and that garbage all over me. And I get to that glass door, or that dry cleaners, and I open up that glass door, and that brass bell hits that glass, and my mom turns around and makes that oh-so-familiar sound. Oh, my God, honey, where have you been? And she goes to the cash register, and she grabs her little wallet and p- peels off $1 and $2, and I run right by her and grab that money and run into Wilmington, California, where I'm going to die. Now the thing that brings it home to me is- <clears throat> you take this same man, New and Alcoholics Anonymous, with my so-called desperation, and I need to ask you something if you're new. How come when my life depends on it, that when I'm sitting in a meeting of an Alcoholics Anonymous, I can't ask the secretary of a meeting for a job in a meeting that's going to save my life. If you were to put that secretary that same distance as me and my mom, How come I can't ask her for a job in a meeting that's going to save my life? And make no mistake, it will. But I can put my mom and folks like her that same distance. And how come I can't walk that distance and ask that lady for a job in a meeting that's going to save my life? And I'm here to share with you if you're new. That if my alcoholism doesn't kill me, my selfishness and my self-centeredness will. Make no mistake about that which is why it's necessary for a man with over 39 years to have a sponsor, a home group, and a routine of meetings all week long. And it's not so I could run off to Washington and tell you about it a little bit, but it's for one reason and one reason only. I'll never get so sober that I can't get drunk again, but I can get so drunk that I can't make it back. And I never want to forget what I used to be like and what happened to me and what I'm like today. I never want to forget that. I never want to forget that all these people that, that I would use in my family, everybody that I came in contact with was a target for my selfishness and my self-centeredness. Now my dad was a happy drunk. My dad was a happy singing the blues Nat King Cole Bobby Darren drunk. My old man used to get drunk and sneak into his own home. It was an amazing thing, man. You, he was a window-climbing alky, which I believe is a lost art in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> That old boy standing on that gas meter, pounding on that window all night, hoping that it's his own home, getting ready to make that magic dive over that sink or the toilet, you know. And he was a refinery worker. He was a World War II vet. And the old man used to tell me he would sing this song practically every day. You don't know how good you got it. You don't know how good you got it. Back when I was your age, we really had it tough. And boy, he was absolutely right. I was sold on it. He grew up in the ghettos of Detroit. His father died when he was 13, choked on his tongue. His mother hung herself in a Detroit jail, and he had a dream, and that dream was to marry my mom. She was in a a Catholic uh, orphanage, convent kind of thing, and he wanted to get her out of there and move to California and live the good life, you know. And they were just kids. But at 11 years old, I couldn't couldn't handle it anymore. There's something about people telling you what to do and they're not doing it that confused me. And thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous, where we lead by example. Not only did you and my sponsor suggest for me to do things and tell me what to do, but you showed me. I could see it. And I grew up in this house and I didn't feel a part of. I was afraid of what was going on in there. I didn't like what I was hearing. And I didn't grow up to be a plumber. I didn't have plans to be anything but to get eye to eye with my dad and let him have it. Because I couldn't stand what I was seeing and hearing. I couldn't stand to hear what was going on. And I started running away from home at an early age. And I would hide underneath the house. I would hide in tree forests, And I didn't want to do anything but come to that god-awful house where that if You're afraid to eat because if you drop something, you'll get the arm. Something was always wrong. Something was always giving him reason to toss folks around, and I couldn't stand it. But he was a happy drunk, and that caught my eye because at about 11 years old, there was about four of us, and we were in a garage, and I took a shot of four-rose whiskey. And for the first time in my life, and I, I was known I was a nobody, and you hear it long enough, you begin to believe it and begin to live like it. I knew I was a nobody. I had no confidence. I had no, you know, uh, motivation to do anything, you know, which plagued me when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. Yeah, I'll help you. Put me down for the minimum, you know. And, uh, you know, it drove my dad nuts, you know. But I took a shot of Four rows Whiskey. And I never threw up so much my entire life, me and those four guys, you know. And uh, I never laughed so hard my entire life. And that evening, the magic of all magic happened, you know. I, I kissed my first Latin woman. It was my aunt. She was 46 years old. I went after her, you know. <laughs> Made my uncle a little edgy, you know. <laughs> and uh, where is he now, you know? But I tell you what, man that next and i remember coming home that night and i you know and I, the old man was refinery worker so he was always you know coming home on you know different uh, different hours and stuff like that and uh, he snuck in my house one night you know and that old boot came down on my chest you know and I, jesus dad you know why don't you have mom make you a set of keys you know my god she's up anyway you know i can hear the hoover going now you know So I snuck into that house that night after that drunk, you know, and I went into my bedroom and I flopped down on the bed and the bed took off like the biggest flying saucer I'd ever seen, you know, and that next morning, man, I woke up and I knew I was going to get it. I knew he was going to saw my arms off or something, man, and I poked my head out there and I looked down the hall and no bear, you know, and so I thought I'd go to the room where he had a bar, and I went across the room and my dad had a bar now. My dad didn't have a bar like Dan's father where it was a mile long and you can set up all- no no no. My dad had an Alki bar. It fit one guy. <laughs> it fit one guy, man. You know, and I thought we could go in there and take a little shot right in the morning. And I went in there and I opened up the door and man there was a lock about the size of a big book on there. He knew who was down the hall, and I wasn't going to get any of that, man. But I tell you, that morning, now, I didn't, you know, that morning, I didn't head out the skid row the next day and lose my paper out and come to AA or anything like that, you know. But I tell you what, it dawned on me that this little nobody felt like somebody for four hours. And for the first time in my life, I was comfortable being me. It just melted that icy brain of mine where I could just fit in, man. And I was a somebody for four hours. And I'd rather be a part-time somebody than an all-time nobody. And I knew that the connection that I had there. Now, I didn't, like I said, you know, and I began to be preoccupied with doing it again. And the older I got, the more I got it. And by the time I got into high school, I'm a freshman in high school, and kids are going to their locker rooms to get their books and get their pencils and stuff, and I'm going to my locker to get a little bit of Thunderbird wine and maybe some barbiturates, you know, and I started uh, dating this little Mexican girl, and she had some brothers, and, uh, you know, uh, they like cars, and I love cars to this day, you know, I love cars, you know, I don't have these Dodge trucks like you guys have with these tires this big, and you can drive over each other's houses and the beaches and shit, you know, but I did have a 62 Chevy Impala dropped right down to the ground, had my hair slicked back and my white t-shirt and my black khaki pants that came up to here, you know, and we drink that Thunderbird wine and eat those barbiturates and, you know, bounce around and listen to the Four Tops and the Temptations and the OJs and Marvin Gaye and Junior Walker and God I loved it, man. Hell yeah, I was in my plumbing truck not too long ago, man, and the four tops came on, and shit, I just started sinking in my damn truck, man. I, I loved it, man, you know. I had a little Mexican girlfriend named Lupi, and her sisters would curl her hair in these soup cans, and the noodles were stuck in there, you know. And I'd have my hair all big up like a big Bakersfield tumbleweed, and we'd go bouncing around, you know, with our frowns on, wondering what the hell you're looking at, you know. I'm about 115 pounds soaking wet. I'm sticking out that puny arm on the edge of that window, making it look big so you don't mess with me, man, you know. And just like what I became somebody, man, you know, in my own mind, I became Lawrence of Torrance, for God's sakes, you know. (laughs) Nobody else knew it, but I knew it. And that's all that mattered, man. You know, Loopy's sisters were telling her that men who were well endowed had big feet. So I went out and got me a pair of 15-inch shoes to drive around in, you know. And Dory tripped over my foot today, and I felt proud, you know what I mean? You want me to move that, you know? You want to raffle these babies off? (laughs) You know? And I loved it, man. I loved it. And I became somebody, and I knew that me and Pooch and Loopy were going to bounce off into the sunset, man. And, and, and we did, too. And uh, around 1969, folks are going places, you know, and, and some of them are turning hippie and going to San Francisco. And a lot of my good friends are fighting the war, and I thought, well, what am I going to do, you know? I'm in Gardena, you know? So I grabbed the dope dealer, and I said, let's go to Detroit and find my roots. And so we head out to Detroit. And we wound up in Phoenix, you know, uh, at North Central and Roosevelt at the Apache Hotel, man. Five floors high. Everybody has a room. It's 13 bucks, right? Everybody's got a TV. It's in the lobby. Everybody's got a bathroom. It's down the hall, you know. And I'm afraid to go out during the day, and I'm afraid to be by myself at night. And so I had to find a watering hole, and two blocks down was my watering hole called a wagon wheel bar. The Wagon Wheel is a beautiful place. There's no windows, just a dirty curtain blowing through that door, you know, and, uh, and Merle Haggard yelling at you, you know, and, uh, and I loved it, man. And, and uh, you know, I met a guy named Ernie. Every, you know, every bar has an Ernie. Ernie's the answer, man, you know what I mean? You, you know, you, toe chopped off, you need a toe, he's got one, you know. Everything's in the trunk at Ernie's, you know what I mean? And so I needed a job. Ernie hooked me up with a plumber. I've never plumbed a thing in my life, you know. But the idea of being in your house got my attention, you know. I thought, oh, yeah, you know. I don't care if it's under it, in the attic, in the medicine chest. The idea of being in your house was exciting, man. You never know what you're going to find and take home with you, you know. And so uh, he stuck me with this plumber, and this plumber took me out in the desert, stuck me underneath a house in Tempe, Arizona, He gave me a transistor radio. I had a pint of P.M. bourbon. He says, now listen here, kid. All I want you to do is hang copper. That's all I want you to do. Now I'll be back in nine hours. And I'm underneath this house and I'm excited. Doesn't take much. (laughs) And I'm underneath this house, you know, because you never know what you're going to find under there, you know, little treasures and stuff. And I, you know, I'm excited. So I, you know, I start crawling around and I see this stray cat. And I go, oh my God, this is great. Oh my God, this is beautiful. I got a transistor, I got a pint, I got a pet, you know. I've, I've never had all these three things going on in my life. I get this sense of my life coming together, you know. So I start drinking that hot bourbon, and if there's anything that clears the way of hope and financial security, there's a shot of that hot, dirty bourbon coming down there, man. And then it coming right back up, and it just warms the back of that ear and that neck, and your little earlobes just start flying away, man. And you know you need another one, you know. And man, by the time I was done, I'd gotten drunk, and I busted up through the lady's floor, and I robbed her of her jewelry, and... And uh, some of her money, you know, and then I passed out and the boss is dragging me out from underneath that house and, you know, and then the cat comes running out with a bunch of necklaces on, you know, and they put me in jail for about four months. I get out of there, go back to the wagon wheel and Ernie says, I know what we're going to do. Not too far from here is a horse track. We're going to get you down to 95 pounds. You're going to be a jockey. And I said, oh, God, this is great, man. I could start getting my health back and everything. I don't know about that, he says. But what I need you to do is I need you to take this stuff for about two months, I'll come back and get you, and I'm pretty sure you'll be down to 95 pounds, and, and we'll go weigh you in and get our colors. And he took off, and I'm in my little room with the stuff that I've never had. You know, I don't know what the hell it is. I've just been, you know, drinking cheap wine and doing heroin and minding my own business. You know, you know I'm not going to, you know, take the, I don't want to be an Afghan maker, for God's sakes. You know what I mean? I've got my pride, right? Well, he takes off and leaves me with this powder. He comes back two weeks later. Not two months, Two weeks opens up the door, open up the door, he says, oh my God, he says, you couldn't have possibly taken that. Well, I did, Ernie, you can put a saddle on me and ride me around here, you know. I'd eaten this speed and I'd been running around that room chasing a fly for two weeks and looking out that window every 10 seconds going, what's that, what's that, what's that, what's that, you know. Or I'm underneath the bed scared to death because I, you know, I'm seeing these black and white flashes, and it's scaring me to death, amen, and it's screaming at me, and it was the sun coming up and down, for God's sake, you know. <laughs> oh, my God, here it comes again, you know, and getting me out of here, man. He goes, you couldn't have possibly, well, I did, Ernie, you know, and so we went back down there, and bottom line, I worked for another plumber for about two hours, and I did what any, well, the guy was younger than me, I ain't working for no kid. So I did what any honorable man from Detroit would do, I faked a knee injury. They took me to the county hospital, the doctor writes me a prescription for Percodan, and then he leaves, and he leaves a cardboard box full of blank prescription pads he wanted me to have. Right? Oh shit, I took that box, man, I, I took off down North Central, man, I ducked into the old wagon wheel, Ernie sees these things, oh my god, this is great. And we start drinking that cheap whiskey. And he contacted some guy in Yuma, Arizona. And we were writing prescriptions. And we were off. Drinking that cheap whiskey and writing prescriptions for Secondol and Nembutal and two and you name it all. We wrote it all, you know. And <laughs> damn near took it all too, you know. And after about nine months, they caught up with me. And when you're loaded on cheap whiskey and barbiturates, there's no freeway chase on Channel 7, you know what I mean? There he goes down to 10. Look at them go, you know. None of that was happening. I was going nine miles an hour, and the cop was on foot. He was just walking by. Just, hey, come on, man. Open up, open up, you know, and I'm looking at this guy, and I'm going, my God, could this man run, you know? <laughs> threw me out of the car, threw me in jail. I get out of there after about a, close to a year. They send me back to California. In 1974, I'm in California. My probation officer sticks me in this little hotel, and... Uh, It's a boarding house, a little hallway with five beds. Everybody's got a window about this size. There's a mattress and there's a sink on your wall. And everybody used to tell me about having goals in your life. And here's my goal. I'd be in that little room and about once a week, I'd look out that little window. And across the street, I would see the Roy Tan Hotel. And there was this sign that said, beds with hot plates. And I thought, one of these days, one of these days, man, I'm going to get stuff together. I'm moving in over there. You wait. You wait. My probation officer puts me on an abuse for the first time in my life. And in 1974, the longest I was without, and there was no talk of AA, nothing, just just, just, just an abuse. And after 90 days, longest I'd ever been since I was 13, I went to a job interview to be a part-time janitor at midnight and uh, I go to this refinery and I'm four hours early because I'm taking buses and I go to this park and what happens is I flip out in this park, it's the longest I've ever been sober, no vindication or anything like that, I'm in this dugout and I start crying like a baby and I start laughing like a clown and this goes on for hours. I start wandering around there, and the paranoia that used to float through me when I was DT is now wrapping around me and locking, squeezing out these hallucinations that I can't stop. Somebody sees me wandering around. They call the paramedics, and they take me to the Harbor General Hospital, and the doctor comes up to me. He says, son, by the looks of what you've been doing the past years, I need to put you in a state facility and have you observed for 30 or 60 days, and a year later, they let me out, totally observed, and they gave me medication to take. And they gave me everything that they could do. And when I got out of there after 90 days, I I ran out of Thorazine. And in 1975, they found me in Los Angeles. 120 pounds over there. And at this time in my life, there is no invisible line of what a guy does or doesn't do to get a drink. All bets are off. And every now and then you come out of the jungle and you just rest on a pile of tires behind a gas station. And I'm arrested for being a public nuisance, public drunk, out-of-state forgeries, and sentenced to three and a half years in a state penitentiary. I'm in a holding tank for about, oh, they took me up to Wayside County Ranch in L.A., and I'm up there for a couple months in 1975. And in two months, they put a busload of us to the South Bay courthouse where we're going to be tried and sentenced. And I'm in a holding tank about this size. And four o'clock in the afternoon, I'm the only one left. All these guys have been sent away. And I'm wondering where they're going to send me now. And four o'clock in the afternoon in 1975, I heard the most beautiful sound I've ever heard in my life, and it's the sound of keys coming down the hall. And the jailer opens up that door and slides that door. And in 1975, there was a Scottish man with a patch standing out that jail door, and he was clean and he was sharp, baby. And he had that patch on. He goes, Hi, lad. He says, Are you Larry Thomas? And I said, Yes, sir. He goes, Oh, that's great. He says, My name is Alex. He says, Come with me, son. We're going to AA. And I said, oh, my God, what's AA, you know? And who's this Scottish pirate before? You know, I've (laughs) I've heard of OR and PO, but no AA, you know what I mean? And looking back well over 40-some years, I know exactly what he is because this room is sprinkled with him, what my book calls a trusted servant. And what made that man a trusted servant was simply this. He had no business being there. He wasn't a counselor, he wasn't a probation officer, he was a refinery worker who just got the worst news of his life. And that news was that his little wife was dying immediately of a terminal illness. Now he knew she was in good hands, but he knew he wasn't. You see, but somewhere in his book study in Ocean Shores, somewhere in his step study in Seattle, somewhere in his 12 and 12 in Long Beach, California, That man was to sit with you folks and grasp and develop a manner of living that ingrained in him this. Practical experience tells us that nothing will ensure immunity from drinking but intensive work with other alcoholics. That this works. He didn't think of milk and whiskey. That obsession had been removed. Just like it was removed by Bill Wilson at the town's hospital. Bill didn't just lay there and this thing disappeared. No, no, no. He had a visitor. His little high school buddy, Ebby, came over there, read him these proposals, discussed this proposal, and Ebby left there, and Bill had this profound experience. One that I thought that I was supposed to have when I was about five years old, but it didn't, and I, for five years I thought that I was doing it wrong because I didn't have the big kabumi. And then one more time, I'm in your little book study, and two paragraphs after Bill has that profound experience, Bill's still laying in that same peace and bed, and he has the idea, maybe I should work with other alcoholics. He didn't say maybe I should help everybody. He said maybe I could help other alcoholics. I believe for me that at that afternoon, my singleness of purpose, my primary purpose, if you will, was hatched that afternoon. I had just been given the bill of goods, and maybe, just maybe, it dawned on me that what happened to Bill suddenly, he's hoping and praying will happen to me gradually, but the end game is the same. This isn't mine to keep. This isn't mine to hoard. I've been given this little gift for one reason, and one reason only, that one of these days, there's going to be another Larry the Loser back there, and he's going to say, my golly, he's talking to me. I understand. You can't talk people into being Alkies. You identify. My God, that guy that's exactly what I did. And you reeled me in. And that man took me to my first meeting in Alcoholics Anonymous. I know I've got a couple minutes left because we got to get to the airport. But shit, uh, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And that man took me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I was ready for a long ride up north and maybe some lunch, but he took me for a 10 minute car ride and he drove up to this dingy, stinky, rotten, filthy, perverted Torrance Lamita Alano Club. Now, I'd never heard of an Alano. You know, is that like an elk or a moose? Watch for crossing Alanos or something, right? <gasps> And he drove up to this Alano club, and there's all the Alanos walking around, man, you know. Everybody had a nickname and a tattoo, and he starts introducing me to all these goofy people. Indian Genie, Captain Bob, Tennessee Bill, Singing Sam, Serenity Sam, Bicycle Ray, Santa Claus Ray, Dancing Pete, Whistling Butt. Oh, my God, you know. Little Moose was 120 years old. She comes running after him. Ha, I'm expecting a miracle. I said, I bet you are, you know. (laughs) I'm not it, you know. Some big transvestite starts circling me like a helicopter in Los Angeles. He lands, he comes walking up to me. He says, hey, he says, I can't wait to take you to a candlelight meeting. I said, I don't think so, big guy, you know. Not till I get my ear, you know. And I said, my god, that guy's got big feet, right? I ain't messing with that guy, man, you know. And from 1975 to 1982, I came in and out of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that don't make me a worse alky or a better member. All it did is prove to me one thing. That all my life, I've been sitting in rooms since the time I was 13, sitting in that chair, waiting for you to do something for me. It never dawned on me to do something for the thing that has given me so much. I'm a something-for-nothing guy. Give me that pint. I'll pay you later. Give me that peace of mind. I'll do an inventory later. And what I was waiting to be done to me, God was waiting to do through me. There's a miracle here. There's a miracle here. Things never happened to me when I quit drinking. Every time I quit drinking, I would always start up again. But something happens to a surrendered man. See, Alkies don't surrender. I'm going to beat this thing if it's the last thing that I do. And it beats the holy snot of And every time I called AA, somebody would come and get me. And it was always this little Montana cowboy, Don. And he never said, are you ready yet? He never said that. He'd just pick me up and take me to a meeting. May 2, 1982, over there in Wilmington, California, just got kicked out of a junkyard because I'd been sitting, sleeping in an abandoned car in a junkyard. i pay a guy a dollar to, to sleep in an abandoned car in a junkyard. He didn't even work there, I found out, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Wandering around, I don't have any money and I don't want to drink again and, and I know I'm gonna. I know I'm gonna, man. I'm like a tail on a kite and I'm so afraid of doing it again, and I don't want to, and I've don't wanted before. But I came to believe that morning, and I didn't come to believe in God or the big book or Bill W. I came to believe in the hopelessness and the futility of my life with me trying to stop drinking. I knew I couldn't, and I knew I was gonna, and I knew I had, this this thing had me. I didn't have it. And I says, if I can get a hold of that ball-headed carpenter, I'll do anything this guy tells me to do. And I panhandled some money, and I called that Alano Club, and who do I get? I get Don. I said, Don, this is Larry. I'm ready to come back to AA. Will you come and get me? And he told me the most profound thing I've ever heard in my life. He said, no. He says, you know where we are. You know what we got. You get your rusty rear down here yourself. I'm tired of chasing after you. And he hung up. And I said, my God, whatever happened to that AA love? I Just heard it and for the first time in my life. It was up to me to come to you and it took me two weeks But I finally walked that 10 miles with my poopy pants, and I waddled up in that little club And they didn't and I was shaking and I was alone, and they didn't send me to a detox They didn't send me to a recovery Frank and Lucille started walking me and feeding me honey and orange juice Giving me that god-awful buttermilk And every time I would shake, they would hold me down, and she'd give me a candy bar and stuff like that. And Don finally showed up, and I finally got to ask that man something I never asked a guy in Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, Don, I don't know what to do with my life. Would you be my sponsor? And he lit up like a chandelier for about five seconds, and then he lit into me for about 20 minutes, man. (laughs) He gave me the wood. He says, here's the contract, kid. You make the effort, I'll make the effort. You don't make the effort, lose my number. I got guys who want to do this thing, and I fell in love with you. And I stood ready to do anything to relieve this merciless obsession. I've got to go now. But all I can tell you is that being that it's a Sunday morning meeting and being a guy who didn't want anything to do with God because God was the reason I was ever since I was five he'd been coming after me and I didn't want to do nothing with God or anything like that but you see I was so uneducated that I fell in love with you and I had this thought that you guys were the spirit here maybe this could be my God I wasn't educated to know anything better. And I couldn't separate God and you. I couldn't think about one without thinking about the other. And then I started having these commitments in my meetings. And it dawned on me that the more I served you, the clearer he became. And that the more I served me, the darker I become. And I began to have my own, like the book says, when we sincerely took a position, remarkable things began to happen. I hadn't been sincere my entire life. And I finally had an idea. I finally had an idea of what I was. And it came out in my inventory. I always wanted to be my, I always wanted to be my father's son. My sponsor, Johnny, told me one day, he says, if I had a son, you'd be it. You don't have to do anything to make me love you anymore, kid. And there's nothing you can do to make me not love you. I just love you. All I want you to do, Larry, is carry that message. And I found my father through my sponsor. I found my own father through you and making amends. And by serving you folks i found, for the first time in my life, I don't have to be anything anymore. And if you're new, the great search is over. Everything you need to make you happy will be given to you by the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And anything that hinders that happiness will be removed by the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Your search is over. My search is over. I don't got to pretend to be anybody. I have no other images. I'm in the highest place I've ever been. I'm my father's son. I'm your son. I'm a server of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm a proud member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And because of the respect that I have for you, I can't wait to see you again. So if you're new and you're having trouble with God, on a Sunday morning in the beautiful state of Washington, There's table after table and row after row of people who should be dead, locked up, or insane. And look at us this morning. Look at us all week long. We're happy, we're joyous, and we're free. By golly, we're playing in the evidence. Let's come back and do it again. Thank you.